If These Walls Could Talk is a case that we cover over two episodes. This episode marks part two of two. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Previously on Part 1. This all began April 3rd, 1996 with a 911 call. What is your emergency? Uh, my wife's been shot. Where is she shot? In the neck. You couldn't readily tell where this injury was based on all the bleeding. And on the 911 call, the husband, Mark, is pretty clear where the injury was. Exactly. So that's a problem for him. His behavior was very peculiar and became the point of scrutiny from the very beginning. He is processing thoughts out loud. We told him very clearly, don't go to the house. We have it by court authority for five days. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes. And together, we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Okay, so now you've got eyes on Mark. On the balcony, in his green shirt. He only bought a shirt, right? I just, I like the image. Like, is he in his jail pants, a Mm -hmm. new t-shirt, and drinking wine on the balcony? Yeah, he's still in the jail pants. And then what he does is our surveillance team monitors him, and he keeps going into the second story room, coming back out on the balcony, looking around. He looks like he's waiting for somebody. He's becoming frustrated. Um, We see him pound his fist on the railing. And then shortly thereafter, a car arrives with a guy. Turns out it was some friend of his. They leave and they go to his place of work. He worked as an administrative assistant at a medical facility where hospitals were his client. There was more than one hospital in the area. And he had a prox card and he proxed his way in. What's that? Oh, it's a proximity activated security card, a card reader. Okay. And so he accessed into the building He wasn't there very long, and he came out. He was wearing a sports coat, slacks. Uh, He had some loafers and a 
T-shirt, same T-shirt that he bought, and then they made their way back over to the apartment, to the hotel. So you have the house for five days. How long before you really start to close in on him? You know, we have exhausted all of our standard investigative protocols, and we have come up really with nothing more than we had to begin with, with the exception of his indications to us through his assertion for an attorney and some of his self-talk that something's going on. We determined during the course of our search at the house that there was wet clothing in the washing machine and it was an outfit that he may have been wearing. The thought being he had washed or laundered any evidence that way. And so we kind of looked at it as that after having exhausted all those leads, anything that we're going to generate is really circumstantial, just contributes to more circumstantial evidence that implicates him, so to speak, but nobody's ever gone to prison for murder on just circumstances alone. At this point, were you going to give any merit to his account that somebody else must have killed her? Were you pursuing any other leads or looking for that or just that felt like a dead end? You try as an investigator always to kind of keep that open that there may have been more than one player. I mean, it could be that he had an accomplice. We felt pretty certain that he was our guy, but I think you have to step back and at least avail yourself to the possibility that there might be somebody else involved. So you do that. But we kind of felt like we had noticed that what we know about this guy is he doesn't respond very well under stress. This crime scene is grisly. We had gone in and we had done a reenactment at the scene because when we did the autopsy, we noticed that Rebecca had been shot from her right, that it was what we call a medial proximity gunshot. So it wasn't a close contact gunshot. It was from at least arm's length. And when a firearm is discharged at a person from that distance, the velocity of the gunpowder that comes out with the bullet is such that it will actually tattoo the skin. And so she had what we call stippling from that in her skin. And based on the diameter of the cone that's created, when a weapon is fired under those circumstances, you can intuit how far away the shooter was. And so we had done that reenactment and we took one of our records specialists that was about similar stature, put her in a paper suit that we've talked about before. Yes, the paper suit. And she laid in the bathtub. We had used a dowel at autopsy to identify the wound tract and try to intuit what we could from that. And then we duplicated that in the scene. And so we had a pretty good understanding about where he was, whoever it was, when they shot Rebecca. Based on that information, the trajectory, and how close that person was, would you consider that like a good shoot, like this person was a good shot and knew what they were doing, or it was sort of haphazard? You really can't tell other than I think you can intuit from where she was struck, how her body was probably positioned, that she was facing her assailant. And I think what's remarkable about that is that there is a lack of apparent evidence of surprise. And so, again, more evidence to indicate that there was some familiarity with the person. Right, right. right. Not dealing necessarily with an intruder, or it may have been a surprise intruder, but regardless, just at arm's length. Probably. Mm -hmm. So you've got nothing but circumstance and observations about Mark and his odd behaviors. I mean, how do you get to the truth? Well, we consulted with a mental health specialist and talked about our observations about Mark 
And um, this consultant told us, you know, somebody who talks to themselves during stress is likely to repeat that behavior during stress. And so we were talking about the scene and asking for that opinion from that professional about our observations and trying to get a little bit deeper into it and just make sure that we're properly grounded in our opinion. And then, of course, we cited that aspect of our investigation when we applied for the intercept under the theory that we wanted to put a microphone in the house when we had to release the house back to Mark. Can you define intercept? Yeah, so this is a higher degree of privacy invasion, I guess, from law enforcement. And so a search warrant is one thing. Applying to intercept verbal communication and recording that is a more significant intervention or intrusion. So it refers to a certain kind of warrant. Yeah, it's called a wire intercept. So you mean you old school style, wanted to bug his house. That's a spy novel. Yeah, we felt like we had one chance to capture Mark's response when he encountered that grisly scene for the first time. So it wouldn't have been cleaned up in the time that he was staying at the hotel and you guys had the house for five days? Normally we would. Normally we would clean that scene or we would have it cleaned out of respect for the surviving family. In this case, we deliberately didn't clean it. We left it the way it was. We wanted to capture that moment. So we applied for an intercept to be able to put a microphone in the house. Genius. Do you tell him, hey, by the way, like the cleanup's on you? No, what we told him is that we would let him know when the house was available back to him. And so we were dealing with a timeline too. At this point, we had put about 450 man hours into this investigation. 150 of that was overtime. Dave and Dan know you run your ass off. You work without sleep because we're hot on the trail. But we were coming to an end of our five-day period. And so we separately applied for the ability to put this microphone into the house. Adjacent directly to the bathroom where the crime scene was, was a utility room. And so we identified that as where we were going to put the microphone. And how did you go about installing this intercept? We had authorization at night to go in, drill a hole, run this hard cable microphone. So this is before wireless microphones. So we had a hard mic, right? So we put the mic in behind the washer and dryer and we stapled, trailed it up like any other cable utility up to the roof of the house. And then uh, we obtained a city utility truck, donned our hard hats, and we ran this wire by way of zip tie on the cable service down the block by way of this utility truck to a, a utility station that happened to be on that block. So the public utility allowed us access into the concrete building where all these transformers were. And that night, it was literally a lightning storm. So Come on. Yeah. So this case was spooky enough with his behaviors and listening repeatedly to this 911 tape over and over and over again, trying to figure out what he's saying and what little sleep you got, you were hearing that in your sleep. So we were up on the roof during this lightning storm. I remember I was up in the utility bucket of this truck, and so I got this investigator who is driving the truck, and I'm out on this boom in a bucket with a guy who's not experienced driving a utility truck. I was going to say, are any of you experienced doing this sort <laughs> no, of thing? No, yeah, we're, we are not. It's your first time in a utility bucket? Even, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really was. And I remember one of the neighbors came out because we had our flashers on and stuff, and she said, you guys better be careful. You're gonna, somebody's going to get struck by lightning. I can't believe you guys are doing this. 
At night, well, we got an emergency, you know, or whatever. Hands are freezing. I mean, it is coming down rain and hail and literal lightning. And so we're zip tying this line because we want to conceal it. When Mark shows up, we don't want him to see anything about this. And we want to make a show for the neighbors as well and don't want them to see what we're up to. And they had seen us as investigators coming in and out. So we kind of put on our own little disguises. That is so badass. Yeah, it was pretty cool. What was exciting about it is that you think you know who the guy is. You know who he is. But being able to prove it, That's what I'm thinking about while you're telling this story is the anticipation of you guys sitting in that room waiting for him to walk in and get to the bathroom and have that, oh shit moment Yeah, where you guys are waiting to hear it. That's why I'm like, God, I wish I would have been in that room. Because he's not prepared to encounter that. No, he's not. I mean, the scene is set, right? He's already created a bloody crime scene as far as we are concerned. And so that's our opportunity. So we run the line down to this utility station And it's pitch black. It's surrounded by cyclone razor wire because it's a utility hazard. It's a central point for power transformers. This concrete building has got Florida almost ceiling aisles with electronic transformers. And there's this eerie, loud electronic buzz that's going on all the time in there. And the lights flashing here and there. And it's just, it's so spooky, right? So we get it all set up. And we get our recorders all set up. We have two or three duplicate players and recorders. And so we're set. And Mark is given access to the house. So we're there and waiting when he encounters that crime scene for the first time. Hey, small town fam. It's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon. So the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey folks. 
Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, Small Town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. So you're sitting, waiting, listening. He comes home. What do you hear? He goes in and you hear him running water. You hear buckets. 
So he starts cleaning. Yeah. When he sees it, does he go, oh, shit, or oh, God, or is there any utterance? Initially, he doesn't really say much of anything. He's walking around, and he does do the, oh, my God. <sighs> you know, he's, he's preparing to work. You can tell he's overwhelmed by what he's seeing. So, yeah, buckets. He can hear him in the cabinet pulling out. Sounds like he's moving sticks around, so he's got you know, mops and stuff, and he's gathering brushes, and you can hear the scrubbing sounds, but he starts making statements while he's doing this. And what's most creepy is that early on, he starts playing this Gregorian chant music. On a CD player or something? Yeah. He's got a recording. I don't know if he's got a cassette tape or what, but I mean, you can hear this it just starts, and at first I think it's coming from inside my room where I'm at monitoring, <laughs> you know? And I remember the hair raising up on the back of my neck and kind of looking around. I, I mean, I remember actually getting up and walking through this concrete building and looking down each aisle. Which one of my detective friends is fucking with exactly. me right now? Yeah, just to make sure I'm alone. I don't even know what in the hell Gregorian chants are. I just know that whatever this is, it's scaring me. And later, one of my partners tells me what I'm hearing. But he's, he does, he starts making these comments while he's cleaning. I'm sending away for a long time. So be it. So be it. So be it. That's not what's important. What's important is that I learned to know God. Paul put up with so much. So much. So again, interestingly, it's more of that me side of him, and that plays out later during the trial. Once you were hearing Mark actually utter words of confirmation that, in fact, he had done it, what was that like for you? I mean, your plan was working live and in real time. Yeah, because it's like he fell right into the trap, and so it was like, fuck yeah. I just remember just going fist bump, like, got him. Got him. 
Right. Were you alone in this building? You didn't have your partner with you? No, I had another partner with me, and we're just looking at each other. Going, okay, great. I, can you fucking believe this? Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, after all that time, it's coming together and all that work, because it's a significant undertaking. And being proud of the fact that we came up with this plan and stuck to it long enough to see it through. Because I think as investigators, we think about these things. Sometimes we have a hard time coming together on them and agreeing this is what we're going to do and getting authority from our boss to do this, knowing it's going to cost a lot of overtime, money, expense. And a judge. And a judge, exactly. And getting a judge to go along with it. Because again- Such an unusual request. It is. It's a significant invasion of privacy. How long till you guys get your hands on him? You mentioned that you contact his attorney. Right. So right about that same time, I think it was the next day, we, as in the cops and investigators, had done our search. But Dan and Dave know when you get cops together and you're going to go search an area, you're pretty efficient at searching and looking at the ground for evidence for about 15 yards. And then you start getting mission creep and you start talking or you start whatever you're doing. But What's mission creep? We in law enforcement and in the military, I think we see a mission creep occur when you have a specified task and it's that human tendency to deviate from that task and sort of chase squirrels. We're not really good at focusing on the task at hand and really getting after it in a way that you can duplicate with Explorer Scouts. So we use these search and rescue Explorer Scouts. They're an actual group? Mm -hmm. Are they volunteers? Or? Yeah, yeah, they're can volunteers. I join that? It's pretty cool. They're kids. Yeah. They're usually 15 to 21. Oh, cool. No, I'm good then. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we get these kids together and they are experienced and trained at crime scene searching. And so we tell them what we want. And I'd only seen them work a couple of times. So across from Mark and Rebecca's house, there's a vacant field that's bordered by a tree row and a creek. So they start from the house and they work this field. And probably an hour after they had been searching, I looked out there and I see these little red flags all over this field because anything that's foreign, they mark it. Eventually they get across to the other side of the field and in this muddy creek, they find the murder weapon and they find the 357 revolver still loaded with the round that killed Rebecca still under the hammer. They find an additional 22 pistol that belonged to Mark. See, we had determined through the course of our investigation that he had been given a 357 revolver about a year earlier during the liquidation of his father's estate. Oh. So he had lied about the gun. Uh, we knew he had a second gun that another witness told us that he actually safe kept for Mark for a period of time. And then Mark had asked him to give it back to him earlier in the year. So we knew that he had those two guns. We knew from talking to his brother that Mark had pointed a gun at him during a dispute when they were younger, that this brother had seen Mark shoot a horse. Oh, yeah, God. That his ex-wife said that she had been subjected to domestic violence and psychological manipulation and that he had pointed a gun at her during a dispute and threatened her. He had a proclivity to wear women's clothing and what? undergarments. So he's rather a dark person under that I'm all about me and sort of Christian do-gooder dude. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Why would someone safe keep his gun for him? Because he said, I shouldn't have this near me? Or what is that? Is that like a common thing? Or For a period of time, I think he was transitory. And, and I think he just wanted oh. a safe place to keep it. Okay. Okay. 
And then one other interesting note, we talked to one of Rebecca's friends and she told us that she saw the news of Rebecca's death in the paper and contacted us and said, was she found in the bathroom? And uh, of course our investigator said, yeah, she was. She said, oh my God, I know that Mark killed her because yeah, she said that was her sanctuary (gasps) that he had removed her door from her bedroom they slept in separate bedrooms, but that Mark had removed her door kind of as part of his process of eliminating her ability to do things. Mm. She said that Rebecca had confided that the bathroom was her sanctuary, that it was the only place where she could go and be at peace. And so she had talked to her friend about bathing and that ability to just kind of escape. So it's a pretty shocking revelation, you know, that Rebecca was forthcoming enough, at least with her friends, that it gave us a real picture of what had been happening in her life. That's so sad. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So during this time, after you arrest him and he's under observation, What's his stance? Is he still in denial? Does his story start to change? Does he try to skip town? Shortly before his arrest, he gathered at the home of Rebecca's parents. Her sister had been abroad, and when she returned, they had sort of a a dinner, and they invited Mark, and they asked him to tell us what happened. The family contacted us and told us this is the story that he's now giving, which was, he said that that night, the night of her murder, that Mark had ordered pizza and that pizza had been delivered a couple of hours prior to when he called 911. The pizza delivery guy said that Mark answered the door, that he seemed in good spirits, that he was sort of jovial, um, that he remarked about the pizza being late, but in a joking way, he didn't see or hear anybody else in the house. Mark said that Rebecca had gone and rented a copy of the movie Grease and that their plan had been to watch Grease. And that during the time that they had watched this movie, Mark had made a remark about Olivia Newton-John and that she was appealing. And why couldn't Rebecca be more appealing to him that way? I hate him. Yeah. She got upset about that remark and he said that she had gone back to the bathroom to her sanctuary. She went to take a bath, and and I was sitting there feeling kind of rejected, you know, and kind of like kind of shut out. And like I said, I I had been drinking, um, and sometimes weird things come into your head, you know. So I got this idea. Well, I really would like her attention, you know. So how what can I do to get her attention? And that's that's when I came up with this really stupid idea. The gun was in the 
in the bedstands. And um, this is a point that I'm, I'm glad that I was able to take a polygraph yesterday because I, I know that, I know it's not admissible, but in a way I'm glad I did that before I did this because it's helped to clarify some things that have been bothering me the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been, that had been bothering me was, are you sure that you thought that gun was empty? Because that was what I would then have been saying to myself, because it hadn't been fired in over a year. So I had convinced myself that it was empty, but it was like part of my mind was going, are you sure you didn't leave a bullet in there? And that's why I was glad I took that polygraph yesterday because that helped me to understand that, yeah, I wasn't quite sure, to tell you the truth. I gotta be perfectly honest with you. I wasn't quite sure, but it was kind of like, it was in the haze in my mind. It was kind of like got shoved in the back. It was like, I didn't really want to believe that but I came into the bathroom quickly, and... Hey, you got the gun from the nightstand? Yes. Okay. And I came in quickly because I wanted to surprise her, and my intention at the time was to do something like dry fire at the back wall, you know, or something, you know, and, and do something to startle her, and, you know, get her kind of... My intention was to, to startle her and get her attention and make her kind of... You know, we had this kind of thing where I, I'm always always playing jokes on, on people. I do it a lot. And she's always telling me when I do one that's stupid that she gets that look and says, well, that's really stupid. Don't you do that? Don't you pull jokes like that anymore. You know, and then, I, then I'm very contrite and tell her, you're, you're right. You know, so, you know, give me a kiss, look makeup. And I don't do it anymore. So I came in and I pulled the hammer back as I came in. And it was like, at that last instant, it was like, I was absolutely, I felt horrified that I was even pulling such a stunt. And it suddenly came to me that this is not funny. This is really, this is really dangerous what you're doing because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking there might still be a round in there. So as I came in and I realized that the hammer was back and cocked, all of a sudden, at that moment where this horror struck me, I tried to I tried to put the hammer back down, but in my haste, several things happened at once. First of all, my hand I used only used one hand, which I shouldn't have done. I was uh, I was under the influence of alcohol. My hand wasn't working the way that it should have. And as I came in, my foot caught on the rug. There's a rubber back rug right in front of the shower. And, and all these things happen simultaneously. So I'm quickly trying to, to put the hammer back down because I realize that this is really stupid. So what happens is I have to pull it back and pull back on the trigger to let the hammer back down. So as I did that, I'm doing it with one hand, so it's kind of going like this, and I, I pull the hammer back, I pull the trigger back, and then I start to let the hammer back down, and it slipped from my thumb. I didn't think it was really happening. I thought it was a joke. 
I thought she was pulling a joke on me. I don't remember what, much about what happened after that. I just remember that I just felt like there was a freight train going through my head. And I just felt really scared. And my heart was just going like a trip hammer. And I remember running out of the house and throwing the gun away. I think I threw it in a ditch behind the house or something. It was a ditch, I remember. Creek back there. And I went in to see, and then I had to go in again to see if this was really real or if it was a dream. You know, and when I saw, I went in and saw it was really real, then I, I went and called 911. Okay, so that was a recording of his suspect interview at the station, right? But before that, you're saying this is the same story he was telling her family? He's telling them this story. And yeah. are they baiting him because they don't believe him? They believe you guys? They are very suspicious of him. I think that Rebecca had confided in her sister mm. that things weren't well and um, that their marriage was in jeopardy and it was rocky and tumultuous and that he had been abusive and that he controlled her and he was isolating her and he emotionally was messing with her. So he said that he went back and he decided, I'm just going to get her attention. And he alternated between, I'm going to get her attention and I'm going to maybe play a trick on her. Play a trick on her. With a gun. That is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And so his plan is to take the gun back there. And he says he thinks to himself while he's walking back to the bathroom, carrying the gun and planning on scaring her with it or goofing around with her, he says to himself, are you sure that this gun's unloaded? And then he describes how he just sort of dismisses it. And as he is stepping into the bathroom, he trips over a rug and the gun discharges and shoots her. I call bullshit. Well, the interesting thing about that statement is it's a revolver. If you're holding it up, you can literally see if it's loaded or not. It's not like a semi-automatic handgun where you have to pull the magazine out and rack the slide to see if there's a round in the chamber. Exactly. He says by her reaction, he sees a red spot and he thinks, she's playing a joke on me. She brought a packet of ketchup in there, and I think she's trying to play that joke back on me. Oh, for God's sake. What is he, 11? So childish. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. He describes this level of disbelief that this is actually happening. I'm struck by the fact that he said that he thought she was playing a joke on him. Like she would have the forethought, hey, I bet he shows up with the gun, which makes me think that's not the first time that he had gone into that room and pointed a gun at her that this was his thing. And another classic domestic violence tactic that these assholes use you bet. to control people. Exactly. So this is the story that he repeated again at trial, the same story that he told the family, the same story that he later regurgitated to us during an interview, and then the same story that he told the jury in court. How did that go over in court? Not well. A um, lot of eye rolling, I'm thinking. Yeah, I think... He's somebody who anybody in the population who has any life experience and comes in and sits on a jury and hears the facts of the case and listens to the lengths at which the investigators went to discover the truth and 
listens to this quirk that follows him throughout this stressful ordeal, they see straight through the bullshit and they returned a guilty verdict in short order. I don't remember the timing, but it didn't take long. Good. Well, at least that. Yeah. What was he sentenced? He was given a life, the minimum of 25 years, plus three years on top of that for a felon in possession of a firearm. He was a convicted felon. He had been involved in an incident earlier before this incident where he had smashed somebody's car in a fit of rage. With his own car? No, with an object. He had smashed it with a blunt object and just smashed the hood and the windshield and done a bunch of damage to the car over some kind of a benign dispute. Takes a lot of damage to get you to the felony level. I was going to say. So he still sits in jail today? He's still. Yeah, he's still. Okay. One thing I was going to mention is that what we discovered at autopsy was that uh, the medical examiner said that Rebecca's injury was survivable, that a gunshot wound track missed her carotid artery, and that had she been given immediate first aid and had the medics been responded immediately, she probably would have survived. When we were processing the scene, we found a pair of muddy boots at the back of the house and a pair of gloves. They were muddy because he ran across that field or walked across that field or strolled across that field and found a hiding spot, put the guns there, and then walked back. And during that time, she was laying there bleeding to death. And it's not a head injury either, so she's conscious while she's bleeding out. Yeah. Fighting for her life. That's horrifying. Yeah, Mm. she died. I mean, I I remember that her eyes were open when she died. And you could see this... um, sort of frantic pattern of blood smear and splotches. As you can imagine, you're laying there, you're seeing yourself bleed to death, you're trying desperately to do something. And um, just a cold aspect of that. One of the things that he did to isolate her is that they had a car, but she had to ride a bicycle. <gasps> she never got to drive the car. Come on. Oh yeah. my God. Rain or shine, she was riding the bicycle to the university. He managed her finances, things like that. Exactly. Were they middle class, upper class? I'm trying to get a sort of snapshot of the type of life they lived. They were middle class. They both worked. Mark was disparaging with Rebecca. He remarked to her, and we discovered in her writings that he would say, you're never going to amount to anything. And um, I don't know why you're going to work on your master's. You're never going to be anybody of any worth. That's horrible. Horrible. And so the way that that manifested with her and yet the strength that she had to still try and fix this guy and her inability to get away from him, we look upon it when we're outsiders and think it's absurd. Why didn't she just leave? You see it so often. Yeah. Yeah. It's troubling. Perhaps he's one of those men who presented himself as really charming and attentive in order to hook her in the first place. And then once he has her, he starts to denigrate her and tell her that she'll amount to nothing. Yeah, you bet, because she had saved her virginity for the right guy. And she felt like he was the one. I mean, we look at him and think he's a master at manipulation, like most of these guys are in these circumstances. And just was able to get himself close to her. And then once he got a hold of her, he manipulated her into a corner and just beat her down, both by word and power. And she ended up in the end dying at his hand. And he's going to use her religious beliefs and the fact that she's saved herself for her marriage as that's insurance that she's not going to leave me. She's going to do everything she can because she takes those vows so seriously. Yeah. 
and then how he goes to God immediately. Yeah, listening to the Gregorian chants and that that yeah. is some sort of backdrop for him saying, God, if you see it in your wisdom to keep me in this house, that would be awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask, did you get to the bottom of the Gregorian chant thing at all? Is there more to it? I remember discovering in the wastebasket under the sink in the kitchen like a seductive lingerie and a, I don't know, sort of a soft porn pamphlet that I remember thinking, I wonder if that was what one of those things he was trying to get rid of right at the very end, like, ah, that might speak to motive. Like it was his lingerie because he liked to dress up in women's clothing. I mean, what what would that reflect? I guess I was, in speaking to your question, thinking about that dark component of the music and his backstory. I mean, I just kind of feel like that's part of him that she didn't know about. It seems like there's a lot she didn't know. Yeah. What a tragedy. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bation, Yardley Smith, and Zibby Allen. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. Our associate producer is Erin Gaynor, and our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, head on over to smalltowndicks.com and become our pal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from our small town fam, so hit us up. Yeah, and also we have a YouTube channel where you can see trailers for past and forthcoming episodes. And we're part of Stitcher Premium now. That's right. If you choose to subscribe, you'll be supporting our podcast. That way, we can keep going to small towns across the country and bringing you the finest in rare true crime cases, told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. Thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.